Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison and our long national nightmare is over. I am finally back home after being delayed in beautiful Oregon State. But unfortunately, as usual, the news is sad and depressing this week. So let's get into it. And Derek, why don't we I start- think it was kind of the Biden administration to send Delta Force in to get you out of Oregon. I don't, I don't think they had to kill that many people. It was people. Psych- they, psychological they operations against me specifically. Probably didn't have to like do the airstrikes, <laughs> but it was uh, it was kind of them to, uh, to do it. Horrible to be a victim of Psywar. But Derek, let's start with Iran, which has attacked targets in Syria, Iraq, and Pakistan. So what's going on there? Uh, yeah, I assume this is where uh, most people's attention will be focused. Um, there, I would say uh, if you had a moment earlier this week, uh, specifically maybe Monday evening or into Tuesday, where you thought that we were about to start World War III, uh, or maybe that this was just the final confirmation that World War III is underway. Uh, I would not have blamed you. Uh, this was the point where the Iranian military, or uh, specifically the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, fired a barrage of missiles Monday evening at targets in Syria and the Iraqi city of Erbil. Uh, they claimed to be targeting, uh, first of all, in the case of Syria, Islamic State, uh, connected sites, and in the case of Iraq, sites uh, that they called spy centers, uh, which usually refers to uh, Mossad, uh, suspected Mossad presence in, in Iraqi Kurdistan, but also the presence of uh, Iranian Kurdish uh, groups that are, you know, either politically or militantly uh, challenge the, the Iranian government. So um, the attack uh, in Erbil, I don't think there were any casualties in Syria from this, but the attack in Erbil killed a Kurdish businessman who, you know, who knows, may have some connections to to the Israelis for all I know, or some Iranian resistance. Some movement. connection to something. Yeah. And <laughs> a few other uh, seemingly civilians. Um, but it also took place uh, very close to the U.S. consulate in Erbil. And I think that's relevant because I, I think this was not just an attack against uh, Iran's enemies. Not that they haven't done this before. They have certainly launched attacks like this against uh, targets in Iraqi Kurdistan in the past. Uh, But I think also this was meant to be kind of a show of force to the United States, given everything else that is happening uh, in the region, um, but done in a way that wouldn't overtly kind of invite uh, a response from the U.S. military and hasn't because, you know, there was no uh, damn, it, w- it was, you know, far enough away from the consulate. There was no damage. There were no uh, casualties connected to the consulate. Uh, now, on uh, Tuesday, uh, after the Iraqi government withdrew its ambassador from Tehran and uh, summoned the Iranian representative in Baghdad to, you know, complain about uh, what is at the very, at very minimum a violation of Iraqi sovereignty, uh, the IRGC on Tuesday took its show uh, on the road in the other direction and attacked targets uh, supposedly affiliated with uh, the Baluch uh, militant group 
Jaish al-Adl in Pakistan. Uh, now, uh, the Pakistani foreign ministry said that uh, the attack killed two children and injured three others. Uh, so I'm not clear whether uh, the Iranians hit what they were aiming for, but the Pakistani foreign ministry or the Pakistani government was uh, quite upset. It also uh, recalled its ambassador from Tehran and asked the Iranian ambassador uh, in uh, to Pakistan, who was out of the country, he was actually in Iran at the time, asked him not to come back. Um, so that was that was the first cut of this. Now on Thursday morning, uh, the Pakistani military undertook its own strikes against targets in Iran, also supposedly, allegedly uh, belonging to Baluch militant groups. There are Baluch militant groups that operate basically on either side of this border and they attack the other countries. So there are, are militant groups like Jaish al-Adl, which is partly Baluch nationalist. It has some roots in uh, jihadist uh kind of a, a jihadist background, uh, gets support from the Saudis, for example, or has in the past allegedly gotten support from the Saudis. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I, I can't speak to the degree to which it's, uh, ideology today is, is driven by that versus just straight up Baluch nationalism. Uh, but there are also Baluch nationalist groups that operate in Iran and, and attack targets in Pakistan. This is an ongoing, uh, problem in the relationship between these two countries. And so the Pakistanis say, uh, they fired some missiles into Iran, targeting again sites connected to Baluch separatists. Which, you know, obviously this is a retaliation, but it's a retaliation that gives the Iranian government an out to say, you know, they weren't attacking Iran per se; they were attacking these militant groups. And I think the Iranian government is taking it. It doesn't sound like there's any. Uh, they have complained, as the Pakistanis did. Uh, about the attack and about the the violation of sovereignty, but they haven't made any moves toward responding in any more uh, in in a more kinetic way. So uh, I suspect the most likely outcome here is that it will just kind of uh, level off where it is. But boy, for a region uh, that did not need another outbreak of violence in a different place, uh, this has been a, a rough few days. Uh, for the Middle East. Uh, and uh, I know Pakistan technically not in the Middle East, but uh, nevertheless. Southwest Asia, I believe, right? Southwest Asia. We could go with Southwest Asia, I suppose, although Pakistan's more South Asia. Also, yes, Pakistan is South Asia. Yeah, yeah so, so uh, yeah, just a, another uh, alarm bell going off in a place where th th there's already a 10-alarm fire. Uh, but uh, I, I think, as I say, the most likely scenario here now is that that both countries will stand down the iranian government's been under a lot of pressure lately i think internally to respond as you know not just to gaza but to you know the israeli attacks on hezbollah to uh, now the u.s bombing the houthis in in yemen uh you know it it, it makes uh, on some level the iranian government look like it's letting its proxies take all the fire and do all the work uh and uh, that generates uh opposition, mostly from sort of the conservative principalist uh, wing of Iranian politics, but it's it generates some kind of internal uh, hostility, which I think they're responding to here by kind of flexing their muscles. Uh, and uh, hopefully that's all it is and it won't uh, escalate to anything else. Derek, let's turn to Yemen, where 
predictably, the U.S. attacks on the Houthis have ended the conflict and the U.S. has emerged triumphant. Yeah, the, the, the Houthis, they've, they're done. Uh, they're, they're not going to do anymore. They're, they're good. Uh, mission no, accomplished. <laughs> the, yeah, mission accomplished, as, as always. Um, late last week, I think uh, a few hours after we recorded uh, last week's news uh, update, the U.S. and U.K., uh, I think I said last week it was imminent that they were going to do something. They launched a, a, a major uh, airstrike, a major wave of airstrikes, actually two waves, uh, one very large one, one slightly smaller against uh, basically Ansar Allah or Houthi, depending on how you want to refer to them, targets uh, in northern Yemen affiliated with the group's missile and drone capabilities, its radar sites and other kind of uh, command and control facilities. Uh, they have since done this, uh, by my count, at least four other times in response to continued Houthi attacks against Red Sea commercial shipping. So clearly the deterrence is working and the Houthis are, are uh, you know, backing away. They're, they're terrified. Um, the, uh, the leader of the Houthi movement, Abdulmanik al-Houthi, on Thursday gave a televised speech in which he talked about what a great honor it was uh, to be standing up to the U.S. and, and battling with the U.S. and uh, suggested that nothing that the U.S. does is going to uh, cow the Houthis in any way. Uh, Joe Biden, <laughs> this is great. This is a metaphor for pretty much everything in 2024. Uh, Joe Biden was asked on Thursday by a reporter on uh, either at the White House or at, on Air Force One. I've seen different accounts of this, uh, but uh, was asked whether the airstrikes against the Houthis are, are working. And he said, uh, I'm going to quote him here. When you say working, are they stopping the Houthis? No. Are they going to continue? Yes. So we're going to keep doing it anyway. Even the president says it's not working, but we're going to keep doing it's it anyway. It's the American way, baby. It's the American way. Uh, now, also this week, uh, in addition to the airstrikes, the uh, administration announced that it is adding the Houthis back to one of the State Department's terrorist lists. It's adding it, uh, adding them back to the specially designated terrorist group list, uh, which is a uh, somewhat less severe designation than the foreign terrorist organization. The Houthis were on both, and the Biden administration, uh, shortly after coming into office, took them off of those lists for fear that uh, the designations themselves were hampering humanitarian relief efforts and peace talks uh, to try and end the war in Yemen. Apparently, we don't care about those things anymore. Following U.S. airstrikes on Houthi-controlled missile facilities in Yemen for attacking merchant vessels and U.S. Navy ships in the Red Sea, the United States again targeted the Houthis. On Wednesday, the Biden administration announced it was designating the Houthis as a specially designated global terrorist organization. If the Houthis cease the attacks, we can certainly reconsider this designation. If they don't, as the president said, we will not hesitate to take further actions. The White House says the designation is designed to protect freedom of navigation. About 12% of international trade passes through the Red Sea, and Houthi attacks have already had an impact on global supply chains. Declaring the Houthis a terrorist group bans members from entering the U.S., freezes funds held in U.S. banks, and triggers sanctions against any entity providing the Houthis with support.
But the Houthis say the attacks on commercial ships that began in October will continue in solidarity with the Palestinians and the more than 24,000 killed in Israel's war on Gaza. The redesignation is not supposed to take effect for 30 days. So they've given the Houthis a, a grace period, I guess, to to see the light and decide that they don't want to be back on this list. I don't think that's going to have the intended effect. And the administration is assuring reporters that it will tailor sanctions uh, that it levels uh, that it uh, uh, imposes under this new designation or renewed designation uh, to minimize any impact on humanitarian aid. Uh, or humanitarian relief. This is, you know, the thing that the U.S. government says every time it imposes sanctions, and it it's almost never the case. Uh, it always impacts humanitarian relief. But uh, you know, uh, maybe this time they'll they'll get it right. I guess. Let's move on uh, to incredibly depressing news, and that is, of course, Israel Palestine. Um, why don't we start with the IDF's recent movement south? Uh, yes. So uh, the Israeli military said on Thursday that its troops had reached the southernmost point yet uh, in their invasion of Gaza. This is a uh, apparently a battalion or a brigade headquarters, a, a one of Hamas's uh, brigades uh, headquarters in Khan Yunus, uh, which is the largest city in southern Gaza. Uh, but presumably this is, you know, just another step on the road to uh, moving even further south into Rafa. And, uh, you know, as we've been saying for weeks now, the, the civilians who are, have been driven out of northern Gaza into southern Gaza now have been driven out of central and uh, sort of the, the uh, centralish part of southern Gaza around Khan Yunus and driven into Rafa. They don't have any place else to go uh, unless they finally go over the border into Egypt, uh, which is probably what the Israeli government wants. Uh, but the Egyptian government certainly doesn't want that. So uh, otherwise, it's hard to know uh, where they could go at this point. Um, there is uh, some uh, indication that the Israelis having announced uh, to great fanfare a short time ago that they had uh, completely dismantled the militant networks or the military networks in northern Gaza have uh, seen uh, differently in recent days and have moved some forces that they had taken out of northern Gaza have put them back in uh, to deal with uh, sustained Hamas or uh, you know Hamas and other I guess uh, resistance in that region. So all in all, I mean, you know, if you're tracking this and you keep waiting for the shift, the phase shift that the Israelis keep promising, uh, or that the U S government keeps demanding to a less intense phase of operations, th there's no indication that that is, uh, in the cards at all, despite the rhetoric, uh, that you get from, uh, again, the Biden administration mostly, but also some friendly Israeli government uh, ministers, not Benjamin Netanyahu, we can talk about that, but uh, like Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, uh, you know, I guess trying to appease the U.S. has said, we're, we're, we're going to be transitioning very soon to less intense fighting. There, there's no there's no reason to believe that's true. Uh, and what about this Qatari medicine deal? So the Qatari government uh, announced la late last week uh, that it was close to getting the uh, Israelis and Hamas to agree to a deal that would bring in uh, medicine specifically intended for the remaining hostages in Gaza. A number of them have kind of chronic health conditions that require prescriptions. Uh, would bring in uh, like 
two or three months worth of of medicine just to be uh, you know uh, make sure that those that they could have access to the things that they need. Uh, but along with that would come thousands of boxes of medicine for uh, both the hostage, the rest of the hostages uh, in general, but also for uh, the civilian population in Gaza. This, I think, was a tacit admission that the Israelis have been blocking medicine from getting into Gaza. But uh, you know, don't quote me on that. Uh, anyway, that deal has uh, apparently gone through. Uh, the Qataris said uh, on Tuesday that uh, Israeli uh, Israel and Hamas had agreed finally to give them like their their final approval. By all accounts, the aid uh, got to the Egyptian Gaza border on Wednesday and has gone into Gaza uh, as of Thursday. I don't know anything beyond that whether it has. Uh, made its way successfully to the hostages or or what is going on uh, beyond that. But, uh, you know, that was a little bit of a uh, trying to give give a little uh, pinprick of uh, hopeful something uh, here. That's uh, that's pretty much the best I could do. American Prestige is brought to you in partnership with The Nation magazine. Please consider becoming a subscriber at AmericanPrestigePod.com forward slash subscribe. As a subscriber, you'll get access to dozens of exclusive bonus episodes, including breaking news specials, deep dives into regional histories, analysis of movies and video games, and much more. And if you subscribe at the founder's level, you'll be able to claim a year digital subscription to the nation. Thank you for listening. And now back to the show. Speaking of not being hopeful, um, what did Netanyahu say about the prospects for a Palestinian state? So Netanyahu on Thursday uh, rejected, he, he, he had a press conference, televised press conference, in which he uh, basically told the Biden administration to uh, go piss up a rope again. Uh, this is not the first time, certainly, that he's done this, uh, but said that he is not going to uh, listen to the U.S. government uh, demands for uh, a less intense war that it takes more care for civilian casualties. And he's also not going to listen to the U.S. Uh, demands for uh, material progress toward the establishment of a Palestinian state. He's rejecting both of these things. Uh, he's insisting that Israel must control all the territory west of the Jordan River, which uh, to my ear, to my mind, seem, seems clearly to take you take him in the direction of ethnic cleansing, although he's still been coy about that. Um, I, I don't see how uh, you reject uh, even the idea of progress after all of this toward uh, a Palestinian state. And you reject, as I think Netanyahu has, the notion that you can go back to a uh, an occupation the way it was before October 7th. I don't know what the other uh, course is other than the Palestinians have to go, which I think is the answer that will eventually come down the pike. Uh, this is, you know, as I say, not the first time Netanyahu has told the Biden administration, you know, flip this middle finger at the uh, at the Biden administration effectively. And in a normal circumstance, uh, if the Biden administration really cared about any of these things, if it cared about uh, Palestinian statehood or making progress toward Palestinian statehood, if it cared about uh, a lower intensity conflict that uh, was more amenable to the survival of Palestinian civilians, uh, this seems like a good point to say, kind of pull Netanyahu aside and say, you know what, we're done here. Uh, you can call us if you if you decide to get serious, but we're not 
going to backstop this anymore. Of course, nobody at a high level in the administration actually does care about either of those things. And so they will let Netanyahu uh, abuse them like this in public and and do nothing about it. Uh, and that'll happen when, if and when we get to the point of of ethnic cleansing as well. The administration will say, this isn't, we don't support this. And Netanyahu will say, screw you, I'm going to do it anyway. And they will you know, have nothing to, uh, to respond to that. That's, that's just the dynamic here. And they play this dance in public where, you know, the administration strenuously objects and Netanyahu says, screw you. And it's all for show. As far as I can tell, it's for uh, public consumption, but it has no, um, real meaningful import. I think before we move on, um, Derek, could you tell us just about the experience of Palestinians on the ground and is it still as horrible as it's been? Has anything changed or is it just a uh, absolute I mean, I, calamity? Not, nothing has changed except insofar as it's gotten steadily worse. Like, the death toll is up to, uh, I think, the official death toll, which is probably far under the actual death toll, is up to 24,600 uh, plus at this point. Um, there are already reports of people starving, uh, you know, disease breaking out, uh, in these confined spaces with no medical care. Hospitals have been, uh, you know, I think two thirds was the, the, uh, figure I saw two thirds of the hospitals in Gaza have been taken offline. And there's another one, uh, the, uh, Nasser hospital in Khan Yunus, which is the largest remaining functioning hospital in Gaza is being attacked now by the Israelis who uh, say they have evidence, of course, that Hamas has been operating out of that facility. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it, it's just increasingly dire. We don't have a good window into this because uh, of the media situation, because of the constant communications blackouts, uh, because, uh, you know, Western reporters aren't allowed in and don't want to uh, pick up reporting from Palestinian reporters because they don't really regard them as, let's be honest, don't really regard them as uh, journalists at this point. Um, so it's it's hard to get a good window on exactly how bad things are. But I will say that uh, the undersecretary, the UN Undersecretary General of Humani for Humanitarian Affairs, Martin Griffiths, uh, did an interview with French media, I believe on Thursday, and said, uh, you know, as bad as it looks, uh, I'm paraphrasing him, but as bad as it looks from the outside, the the, the reality in Gaza is probably much much worse, and I think that's uh, that's fair to say. And you know, of course, it it looks uh, really bad from the outside, so you can only imagine. Let's move on to the Taiwan election, and uh, everyone, we're going to have a special on that soon. But Derek, why don't you just give us a brief overview? Uh, yes. So, uh, as was expected, polling uh, had had predicted this. Uh, the a uh, candidate uh, of the Democratic Progressive Party and the current uh, Taiwanese vice president, Lai Ching-te, won uh, Taiwan's presidential election on Saturday. Uh, he finished, uh, it was a relatively narrow victory. He, he won about 40% of the vote. Uh, there were three main candidates uh, in the race. So they, uh, uh, you could argue, as the Chinese government did, it doesn't like the, uh, the DPP, which is more uh, independence-minded than the other parties. Uh, the, the Chinese government, of course, criticized Lai as a minority president, which is not, you know, uh, not out of the question, I guess. Helen Smith, our correspondent, is there. What can you tell us, Helen Allen? Uh, well, I can tell you it is just four hours since the polls closed here in Taiwan, and it seems that we have a winner. You might be able to see on the screen behind me that man in the white coat. His name is Ho Yoi. He is the opposition KMT candidate, and he is conceding defeat. Uh, 
as we speak in this Taiwanese election, and it means uh, that the winner, as has been expected, is a man called Lai Ching-te. Lai Ching-te is the current uh, vice president of Taiwan. He represents the DPP party here. It's the ruling party. It's been in power for the last eight years, uh, and it is the party, crucially here in Taiwan, that takes the hardest line against China. Uh, Lai Ching-te, a popular figure, uh, he has really based his entire campaign around this very clear message uh, that this vote, as he says, has been a choice between democracy uh, and autocracy, making that hard line against China uh, a very, very central part of his campaign. The DPP also suffered a uh, pretty significant setback uh, in the legislative vote. Uh, it lost its parliamentary majority, it, it appears, um, it, and fell behind the Guomindang uh, in terms of number of seats, I believe that's that's the last. Uh, I don't think I don't know that the official results have been announced yet. Neither party has a sole majority, so uh, it, it may make for a, a somewhat rocky legislative session. The third party in this picture is the small Taiwan People's Party, uh, which could act as a swing vote, and that that party, uh, my understanding, tends to align more closely with the Guomindang on questions of the Taiwanese Chinese relationship, but. Uh, you know, on policy issues, it may find more uh, more common ground with the DPP. I don't know, but that's basically the uh, uh, the overview here. And as you say, we'll we'll get into more uh, more detail about it in tomorrow's uh, special. All right, Derek. Uh, let's talk about North Korea, where um, Kim has lashed out at the South. Yeah, this um, was both kind of out of the blue, but not really out of the blue, given. Uh, what what he's uh, things that he's said and, and done in recent months, but uh, Kim Jong Un uh, uh, earlier this week uh, on Monday, and then uh, th was there were there was more reporting about this in state media on Tuesday. Uh, basically, declared that he his government uh, the, the North Korea will uh, n stop pursuing reunification with South Korea as a policy aim. Um, he announced the dissolution of any North Korean government agencies related to things like inter-Korean dialogue, uh, cooperation, and as I say, you know, the sort of reunification offices. Um, he wants to rewrite North Korea's constitution to identify South Korea as uh, Pyongyang's, I'm quoting here, primary foe and invariable a principal enemy. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, he's 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 left the door open to North Korea conquering South Korea and reunifying the peninsula by force. So that's uh, that's something he's not completely uh, closed the door, I guess. Uh, but in terms of any kind of uh, relationship uh, between the two countries, he has decided there should be none, uh, which will last until he decides at some indeterminate future date that he would actually like to engage with South Korea. And he'll probably reverse all this someday, uh, assuming that we all survive long enough to see it. Uh, but for now, at least, uh, I would say that relations between North Korea and South Korea are at uh, something of a, a, a low point. Let's talk about tensions rising between Somalia and Ethiopia. Yeah, so this is something we've uh, covered. The Ethiopian government's deal with the unrecognized Somaliland separatist government uh, to for port access uh, needless to say, uh, the Somali government is not pleased about this uh, because it, uh, it, it it leads to or it, it suggests uh, 
Ethiopian recognition and probably at some point formal recognition of Somaliland independence. Uh, Somali officials have been uh, making some very belligerent comments uh, regarding the deal and regarding uh, negotiations that the Ethiopian government has had with Somaliland officials around things like military cooperation uh, and and basically up to threatening war if, if this goes far enough uh, that it looks like Somaliland is going to kind of uh, use Ethiopia as its conduit to to gain recognized independence from Somalia. Uh, on uh, Wednesday, uh, the Somali Civil Aviation Authority uh, basically forced a plane that was carrying Ethiopian officials to Somaliland to turn turn around and go back to Ethiopia. They said they didn't have permission to enter Somali airspace, which is a very tense thing. I mean, if you think about it, like if they had not obeyed the order to turn around, would they have scrambled fighters to go up and, and you know uh, potentially shoot this plane down? What would have happened? Uh, could have been a very serious situation. I don't think the Ethiopian government has uh, has responded uh, in a in a particularly uh, significant way, but but something. Uh, that a situation that could have gotten uh, quite serious. Um, the uh, latest uh, development here on Thursday, Somalia's foreign ministry uh, declared that it doesn't want to negotiate over this with Ethiopia, that it's not going to accept uh, mediation. The African Union, I think, had uh, had offered to mediate between the Somali and Ethiopian governments. They are rejecting that. Uh, Somalia is rejecting that. They say only uh, tearing up this uh, uh, this memorandum that that the Ethiopians signed with Somaliland over the port deal uh, is going to satisfy them. So, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to say this is another potential uh, conflict point because we have so many of them, but it certainly uh, could escalate to that. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, hopefully not, but uh, we shall see. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk about Ukraine now. Uh, what's been going on in the war that people seem to have almost totally forgotten about? Yeah, yeah I mean, not very much. There was there was reports this week of uh, increased Russian activity, uh, especially around Bakhmut. Uh, the Russians continue to, uh, I think, regain the offensive after kind of absorbing the Ukrainian counteroffensive over the the summer and fall, which, uh, you know, really didn't accomplish all that much. Uh, they have gone back on the offensive in a, in a few places around Bakhmut, uh, like the areas around, they already control Bakhmut city, of course, but, uh, the areas around that, uh, Kupiansk is another, uh, place where they've been pretty active of late. They haven't made uh, sub substantial progress, but, but they have been on the offensive. The city of Bakhmut is on fire. And fighting is only getting more intense. Russian forces have stepped up their assault and they're closing in. It's the bloodiest battle in Ukraine. Russia's on a mission to make a breakthrough in this war. Ukraine is sending in more reinforcements. Russia is deploying mercenaries and sending in warplanes. Capturing the eastern city of Bakhmut would be the first major prize for Moscow in more than six months, opening the way to seize remaining centres in Donetsk. We won't give up Bakhmut. 
We will hold on to it until the very last. Glory to Ukraine, death to the enemies. Of potential interest, I guess, or noteworthiness, uh, the Ukrainian military uh, claimed on Thursday that it had struck uh, an oil terminal in St. Petersburg, Russia, uh, using a domestically produced drone, which, if that's true, would be easily the longest range uh, drone that the Ukrainian government has has man- managed to produce. Um, and, you know, could be, I mean, you know, if they've produced more of them, uh, it could bring a lot of targets in Russia uh, under some degree of threat. Uh, you know, I don't want to put too much uh, stock in it because it might just be a one-off uh, but but certainly we have not seen the Ukrainian military with anything like this level of long range uh, capability before. To hit something in Saint Petersburg is uh, is pretty serious. They've they've been limited mostly to uh, border regions with the occasional drone fired uh, potentially at Moscow. Although you never know if it's fired from Ukraine or from one of these groups. Uh, these Russian opposition groups that that are militias that are uh, supportive supporting Ukraine, uh, which may have been the case here too. The Ukrainians could easily be, you know, kind of fibbing about uh, what actually happened here. But uh, you know, something to watch for sure. Uh, let's talk about Guatemala, where there seems to have been an attempted coup. Uh, yes, we talked about. I mean, we we did a special a while ago about uh, the. Uh, situation in Guatemala where Bernardo Arevalo, who won last year's presidential election, was uh, under attack from the the uh, Guatemalan prosecutor's office uh, over uh, allegations of of political malfeasance by his party, um, and you know was clearly a, seemed to be a, a political effort to undermine his. A potential presidency or even disqualify him from from finally taking office. There's uh, a lot of concern in the establishment, presumably, about uh, Arevalo's uh, anti-corruption agenda, potential anti-corruption agenda. Uh, so, you know, they've been working overtime, I think, to try and figure out a way to stop him from becoming president. Well, uh, the uh, the inauguration, uh, Arevalo's inauguration was supposed to take place at 3 p.m. local time on Sunday. Uh, what happened appears to have been some sort of attempted coup by uh, establishment uh, legislators in the Guatemalan Congress uh, who simply refused to open the new session, uh, at, which you know had to happen as a, uh, as a formality to move to the inauguration. Uh, they were able to delay for several hours, but ultimately around midnight, uh, I'm not sure if it was before midnight or after midnight, I've seen uh, reports either way uh they finally kind of uh, uh agreed to uh kind of back down and open the the session and held the inauguration uh, so arevalo is president now uh they were uh i think maybe cowed by the the number of people who turned out uh as this was going on in the hours that uh, that the, the inauguration was delayed who turned out uh on the streets of guatemala city outside the legislative building uh, in support of arevalo and and threatening you know uh, to to take out their frustrations on uh, members of Congress, so I, I you know I I don't know where things uh, will stand moving forward, but Arevalo is at least you know has at least been inaugurated. He uh, will still uh, have to deal with the prosecutor's office because the uh, uh, the Attorney General Maria Consuelo Porras uh, by law he can't fire her. 
uh, and she's been the source of all these attacks against him. These, you know, these cases uh, against him and his party. So uh, that's going to he's he has said he would will ask her to resign, but uh, you know she's under no obligation to do that. Uh, so that that could be a thorn in his side for for some time to come. Uh, the other uh, thing that he's got to deal with is the Congress, which is uh, largely opposition controlled, I believe. But um, you know, uh, at one point. He has at least gotten his party seated in the Congress at one point during all of the kerfuffle on Sunday. There was uh, the Congress basically forced uh, members of Revelo's party, the seed movement, to enter the chamber as independents, uh, arguing that his party, because of, again, these investigations, uh, was not allowed to take uh, take office. Apparently, they uh, kind of backed off on that as well. So at the very least, he, he does have his, uh, his people in place uh, in Congress to, to the extent that uh, they were successful in the election. All right, Derek, let's conclude with the United States and particularly let's start with Biden and Congress and they're making progress on providing military aid to Ukraine. Uh, yes. So um, we have been talking about this. Uh, the uh, Biden administration and Congress have been at odds for weeks now over this 110, roughly $110 billion war supplemental package, uh, war funding package that, that Biden wants, which includes about $60 billion uh, for Ukraine uh, and uh, around $14 billion, I believe, for, for Israel, uh, some money, I think, for Taiwan, but the other big piece is border security. Um, and the hangup has been over the nature of the border security funding and just how uh, how much brutality we were prepared to inflict on asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, the talks had seem, seemed earlier this week uh, and, and kind of late last week seemed to have broken down entirely uh, over this package. But uh, Biden hosted a number of congressional leaders on Wednesday uh, at the White House, and they all came away uh, sounding fairly pleased with the progress that they had made. Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House, the Republican, uh, said that the meeting was productive. Uh, he didn't go you know, beyond that to suggest that they're on the brink of anything, but uh, he said that they were cautiously optimistic also about uh, maybe getting a deal done. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, also described the meeting as positive uh, and and said he would put the chances uh, of getting a deal done at a, a little greater, a little bit greater than half was his quote, uh, which he said was the first time uh, he could say that. So uh, great news. I know you're excited. There's going to be more money for Ukraine and, and more money for, uh, you know, uh, beating people uh, at the border. Uh, for border guards to to get their gun off and and so forth. So, uh, you know, I think everybody can get behind that. Uh, it's the kind of compromise, again, uh, you know, to go back to what Joe Biden said, is any of this working? No, but we're going to keep doing it anyway. So uh, that's America, and uh, that's that's what we do. Thank you, Derek, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.